everybody, I'm Jamie Duke. And I'm Joe Fontenot. And welcome back to our podcast once again, The Towel in the Basin. That's right. So we've been looking at this series of um, arguments or families of arguments for Mm -hmm. how can we know God exists. Mm -hmm. So we've looked at cosmological arguments, uh, teleological arguments, Mm -hmm. uh, moral arguments, and the very last episode was ontological arguments. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned something to me off air about a different kind of argument called an argument from meaning. Okay. Uh, That... Tell me about that. I feel like that's not something I can Google as easy. That sounds, you know, like ontological. I can Google that. You know, it's going to be, what is this argument for meaning? What does that mean? Yeah, you're right. I mean, you're probably not going to be able to find, you know, explicit arguments to that nature as easily if you Google it. There are Mm. people that make these kinds of arguments. And so Mm. what exactly do we mean by arguments from meaning? Uh, It's a good question. Um, you know, when we talk to people, we use sentences, and in those sentences, there's information, and those that information means something. We hear it. That meaning is conveyed to us, and we respond to it. And so think mm-hmm. about the way language conveys information and meaning together in very unique ways. And think about the abilities that we derive from those types of things, right? So someone comes up to me and says, Jamie, the grass needs to be mowed. And, you know, those are simply words. On the one hand, you'd think that words have no abilities whatsoever to move any needles or to do anything at all. But lo and behold, if you tell me, Jamie, the grass needs to be mowed, I might just go into the garage and grab the lawnmower and go out and mow the grass. And Mm -hmm. all happened because of words. And those words Mm -hmm. were conveyed in sentences and those words have meaning. And so that's what we mean. So from meaning itself, if there's any information that has the ability to convey meaning to us. It seems to me that one could make arguments from that kind of phenomenon to the existence of God. And so Mm -hmm. I think we could argue uh, in a lot of different ways, but here's one simple way that we could do this. And I've mentioned different kinds of logical arguments. We've talked about deduction, induction, and abduction. Here's a deductive argument that I think that we could make. It's a simple modus ponens argument. Okay. Modus ponens are arguments that sound like this. If P is true, then Q would be true. P is true, therefore Q is true, right? That's called mm-hmm. a modus ponens argument. It's a logical form. And I think I could borrow, I could use that logical form and I could make an argument uh, from meaning to the existence of God. And so it would sound something like this. If there is meaning in the world or in the universe, then there must be a God. There is meaning in the universe Therefore, there's a God. And that would be the simple form of the argument that we could make. Now, of course, probably me saying that, nobody's going to be persuaded by that argument until I start to unpack it. And uh, we may still be even struggling a little bit with what do we mean by meaning here. And so Mm -hmm. unpacking that might help us a little bit to to walk through that. So again, a simple modus ponens argument I think you can make. If the universe has meaning, then there must be a God. There is meaning. The universe does have meaning. Therefore, there is a God. So premise one is the premise that if there's meaning, there must be a God. We'd need to defend Mm -hmm. that premise. And then we'd have the second. If we succeeded in defending the first premise, we would have to move on then to the second premise and say, well, there is meaning in the universe, and I'm sure skeptics would have all sorts of cr- criticism that, of that as well. 
So let's mm-hmm. maybe, if it works for you, we'll just take them one, each premise one by one and see if this makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that sounds great. All right, so premise one. Again, if there's meaning in the universe, then there must be a God. All right, so uh, if there's meaning in sentences, if there's meaning in DNA, if, if there's information in that DNA or anything else like that that ha- can be, that can convey instructions or directions or directives or anything like that, then it seems to me that we would we would have to say that there's something, somebody behind that that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, a naturalist is probably going to push back on that premise one, if there's meaning, then there must be a God, by simply saying, look, we can have other explanations of how meaning can get into various things like DNA or language or anything else like that. Maybe they could give us an evolutionary account of some kind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hard-pressed to believe that that could happen because if it's a, if it's a product of evolution, then you're simply saying that it's a mindless activity that has led up to this has transpired leading up to the presence of information, right? So mm-hmm. if it's mindless, then it's simply happened by chance in some way. It just so happens that the way the dominoes have fallen, so to speak, uh, that there's meaning has flopped out the other side. And mm-hmm. as a result of that. And so if there's an evolutionary process, then it would be a result of chance, it seems to me. And that would, in fact, mean that it's mindless. And I don't mean mindless in a derogatory way here. I'm not saying like, ooh, you're an idiot. I mean mm-hmm. that there isn't mind. It's just simply the absence of a mind. There's no person mm-hmm. behind the presence of this in- information that's there. That strikes me as incredibly counterintuitive. And I would offer two illustrations to kind of help make sense of why that's counterintuitive. One, I actually borrow here from a, a philosopher named Richard Taylor, who was not a believer. He was an atheist. And Richard Taylor, considering various arguments for God's existence, gives us this illustration. He says, imagine that you're on a train in England and you're pulling into Waterloo Station. And he says, as you pull into Waterloo Station, imagine that you see on the hillside beside the train station these stones that have been laid out on that hillside. And those stones are arranged in such a way that they actually spell out a statement. And that statement says, welcome to Waterloo Station. He says, you would naturally infer from the presence of those stones laid out in that arrangement that there was someone behind them that actually is welcoming you to Waterloo Station. He says, but now imagine that there's some random circumstance. A bomb went off and blew rocks across the city or something like that. And it just so happens that they landed in such a way that they seem positioned via letters and statements and such. And it just so happens that they are arranged in this way that they say things like, <laughs> welcome to Waterloo Station. He'd say, if I told you that was what, behind, if I told you the first story, that there's a person behind them, then you would be right to infer that you're being welcomed to Waterloo Station. But if, in fact, it's the second, then that there is no one welcoming you to Waterloo Station. And as such, those stones are meaningless. There actually mm-hmm. is no information or meaning in them at all. No one is saying anything. It, the stones mean nothing. So mm-hmm. what you see in this illustration is this sense that no meaning seems to require a mind behind them. Now, I think we could, another illustration I sometimes use with my students, I said, imagine, imagine one day that you, you get a text from your wife and the text simply says something like, uh, would you go by the grocery store and get a loaf of bread on your way home? 
Now, because it's coming up on your phone from your wife and it spells out a logical thought and even gives you a request or an instruction, it has meaning to it, right? And so you would take mm-hmm. it that she wants you to get a loaf of bread. Now, imagine in that circumstance, she was actually on the other end of the line texting that out, hammering it out with her thumbs. Well, in that sense, that text actually does mean something, right? Mm-hmm. Well, imagine that you get a second text, and this time it says, and don't forget to get a gallon of milk. And so you take it that she also wants you to get a gallon of milk. But now imagine the second time she did not actually hammer out with her thumbs and don't forget to get a gallon of milk. Actually, imagine this time that she picked up her phone and she fumbled it and stumbled it and it bounced around and she desperately tried to catch it. And But in the process of trying to catch it, she actually hit it and banged it and smacked it up in the air a couple more times and three or four times this happened and bam, 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 bam. And down it goes and hits her knee and hits her shin and hits her toe and all these things. She tries to, you know, she don't want to break her phone. So she tries to break her phone's fall with her foot and stuff like that. And that every time she bangs and clangs to try to catch this phone, her finger hits a button just randomly by chance, right? But Mm -hmm. randomly by chance, the buttons that she actually pushes are actually letters with spaces between them appropriately for the words that spell out the statement and don't forget to get a gallon of milk as well. And then the phone hits the floor face down and there's a green P on the floor and it happens to the P hits the part that says send, right? Now imagine that is actually the history behind that second text message that comes t- through to your phone. Question is this, does that actually mean anything? Now, of course, on the other end, you're going to receive that and you're going to certainly take it to mean that she wants you to get a gallon of milk such that when you go get the loaf of bread, you also get the gallon of milk. And when you get the gallon of milk, you walk in the house and she looks at you and she seems delighted to have the loaf of bread, but she looks at you like you're crazy because you're standing with a gallon of milk too. She's like, why'd you get that? And you say, because you texted me. So here's the question for you. Certainly you're going to take that second text to mean something. But if the process I just described behind that second message is that way, then actually that second text, despite having letters that have randomly been punched and spaces between words have shown up, Actually, that second text is completely meaningless Mm -hmm. because there was no thought. There was no person behind it that was actually communicating something to us. So the upshot, I think, of these two illustrations is simply this, that, look, the only way there can even be something like meaning, whether that's in language, whether that's in DNA, whether that's or something else like that, it seems to me the only way that there could actually be meaning at all in, in anything whether that's in DNA or language or even existentially, is for there to actually be a someone behind every statement, behind every piece of information, behind every bit of instruction. It seems to me that you have to have that. Minds are necessary for meaning. And if there is no mind, then there seems to be no meaning at all. And so that I think is a, at least for me, now that may persuade nobody but me, but I got to tell you, this world strikes me crazy, freaky, weird if there is no mind behind it because it is a world mm-hmm. filled with meaning. So if there's meaning in the world, it seems to me the only way that's even possible is for there to be a God or at least a being bigger than and greater than and behind all of this that got all this stuff here in the first place. And so premise one to me, stands out as being a pretty secure premise. So let me ask you this question. Sure. You know, somebody could say, well, it's, you know, the the fumbling text message version is really what we see here. Is is the sort of retort to that 
something along the lines of, well, yeah, maybe once that could happen in a, you know, in a million years or something, but we see it constantly every day. Is that kind of the idea? Like there's so much appearance of meaning that it's just kind of hard not to include that? Yeah. So maybe they could. And I would say that actually strengthens our case. You can say, yeah, notice how far-fetched it seems that that could even happen one time. But we're talking about billions and billions and billions of times that this has happened, Mm -hmm. which to me, even more significantly decrease the probabilities that it right. could be anything other than this. Now, another way of sort of stating what you've asked takes us now into premise two. Remember, premise one is if there's meaning in the universe, there must be a God. Premise two, there is meaning in the universe. So one way to maybe restate the retort that you just gave me is to, is to even challenge premise two, that there is, in fact, meaning in the universe, and simply say it's not. it looks like meaning, it seems like meaning, but it's not. It's really just an illusion. And I, you know, I get that. Um, I tend, however, to think that, uh, that is a, that is a long, long stretch. I mean, consider the massive amounts of, of information that we have, not just in the human realm with our language, consider the massive amounts of information we have in things like DNA, cell structure, molecular structure, the amount of information and the amount of seeming instruction necessary and present within atomic structures and things of that nature. Um, we live in a universe that is just dripping with information and data constantly there. And it, it clearly directs, it clearly seems to mean something, right? Right. And so uh, I find that I find that kind of response to be very counterproductive and, and counterintuitive. So I don't find those types of responses to this type of argument really helpful. Uh, and so at the end of the day, I'm still very much inclined to say something like, man, if there is meaning in the world, then there has to be somebody behind it. There really is information and meaning in the world. Um, mm-hmm. And if that's true, then I, I take it that there's somebody out there. You know, this, what I hear as you're saying this is some people in the church I've heard and I've talked to people who are bothered by science. Mm-hmm. And, and and I get that, you know, because there's a lot of atheistic thoughts in science or people say, you know, you, you don't have to think that God did it. We can find an explanation, right? That you right. hear this sort of thing all the time. And so I think a lot of people get insecure or nervous people in the church around science because of this. Mm -hmm. But it's almost as if this argument is saying, no, welcome all of that because all of that is just mounting this massive case for the opposite for God. That's right. I mean, it's, you are finding now in all quarters of the physical universe, data and information that all seem from my seat, require some kind of mind behind them to do something. And interestingly, you know, um, this, this, like we did, we've done a lecture on the, or a, not a lecture. We've done a podcast on natural <laughs> theology and a bit of its history uh-huh. there. But part of the reason natural theology seemed to fall by the wayside in the enlightenment during the modern period was because it seemed like, well, the way it was done up to that point was 
natural theology and God was used. It was a God of the gaps. We can't mm-hmm. explain something, so we're going to throw God at it, and that's our expl- right. explanation. As science began to make progress in its abilities to explain the world, essentially what was found is it seemed to many that we don't need God to explain things anymore because now we have data, and the data by itself can explain it. What's happened now, though, and this is part of why natural theology has come back around, though, is that it's the actual it's it's precisely because of the data that we have and Mm -hmm. the evidence that we have that's caused people to come back to these theological theses and say, Mm -hmm. no, in light of what we see in the data and in light of the information that we have and the and and the, the meaning that we find in it, this draws us back to the conclusion that there is a mind behind it because the data is so rich with that information and in meaning that it, it's compelling back towards theism. So yes, precisely. This allows us to, now we may still quibble with particular theories in the sciences. This is not, please don't hear what we're saying today is to say, Oh, we just therefore accept everything that the sciences are saying to us. No, not at all. Right. But right. to your point, the very presence of the data and the information, the data richness of the sciences is yeah. a very is a very strong piece of of data that we can use to argue for the existence of a god behind it. Well, that's fascinating. That's very interesting. Yeah, man. Well, thanks for walking us through this. This was really great. You bet. Hey, everybody. This is Jamie and Joe again. If you like this podcast, would you leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? That helps other people find it. And if you have any questions, we'd love to hear about them. Just go to jamiedew.com slash questions and send them in that way. And we'll take a look at the most frequently asked questions and give them a shot.